Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. With me today, Gretchen and Bill, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello there. So it's good to be back after a little break. I know we did the podcast last week, but this is our first on-air show in a few weeks. And uh, it's kind of fun. I've missed doing this, but we have got a lot of good input from everybody. Got a really cool Q&A coming up in the next section here that's just a lot of questions that are things I wouldn't thought of and one that I really agree with. So we'll get to that in a, in a little bit here. Uh, but outside of that, a lot's been going on. We're going to get in the news here in just a second. But it's amazing. You know, one of the reasons I love being able to focus on technology and pop culture is because it seems like there's always something new going on. I, I don't know if you guys agree with that or not, but it, there's, it's, it's like it doesn't get stagnant usually. Mm-hmm. Usually. <laughs> so in any event, all right. Well, that wasn't as enthusiastic as I had planned. So with no further ado, let's go on to the news. Today's news is brought to you by Larry Morris with Mortgage Solutions Financial. If you own a home and have more credit card debt than you are comfortable with, contact us today for your no-cost debt consolidation review. 971-229-2215. That's 971-229-2215. So what's in the news? Reno, Nevada declared happiest place in the nation. (laughs) Or, or, or this isn't April 1st, where you realize I thought that, it was right? the onion, actually. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, okay. So before we really go down that uh, path, you know, Reno. Okay, so I grew up in Reno. You guys are there. It's an interesting place. And Reno does have some positive stuff. But the thing of it is, as I know from my own experience, there are some other sides of this that I would have thought this is, like you say, an onion or a parody article. This comes from Outside Magazine. And they have a list of metrics that they have kind of gone through to define, you know, various different things and come out with this top 10 list of which Reno scored number one. And the stuff that they rated in here, I think, is actually pretty accurate, the, you know, way that the downtown is and stuff. But I have a funny feeling that what's going on here is actually a little bit not so much that it's gotten a lot better, although I wish it would. I wish this was true. I'd love to see Reno kind of break out and be a good place. And there's a lot of people that love it and, you know, a smaller town and that kind of thing. But part of what's going on is the, like the downtown being one of the best. Well, part of that is a lot of other cities like San Francisco and Portland. If you go downtown, you need to bring a mercenary to guard you. Uh, so, Sacramento um, too. Yes. You know, some, some of that is just, you know, I think what plays into it, but you know what, let's hope, let's, let's hope that this could be accurate. Um, there are certain things that it offers. Nevada has no state income tax, which is a you know a big deal. It is a smaller city, and if they could just get the rest of it to run right, it could be a really cool place. And when it's not, there's always Tahoe, which is a cool place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you'd asked me any other time, I would have said Reno is one of the angriest places. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> angry or depressing, uh, even. You I know? would say it's it's a bipolar place. You either run into people that are really pissed off and angry. Or people that are really nice. Right, it's like right. a 50-50. You're, you're rolling the dice. You know? you know, and I think yeah. if you dive into it and stuff, it's, uh, it, it's, it's got its points. But, um, you know, and I think that this will be a topic for a future show. But I had a recently an opportunity to tour a high school up here in the area I live in, Oregon. And when I grew up in Reno, I went to McQueen. And it was new at the time and considered one of the best. And, and there are differences between even things like the school district. 
So when you're thinking about a place to be, and Bill, I know you've been dealing with that this year. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of (laughs) schools are so night and day. We got a brand new one. But for those that know that school, it's a brand new school. You'd walk in, you'd think, oh, wow, this is really great. Until you remember exactly which school that is. And just put it out there. Hug high is always going to be hug high at this stage. Yeah, I know they got a new campus, but, uh, you know, and again, for any of our listeners that don't know, Reno, these are just different high schools there. and A lot of them have various histories. And, uh, oh, you yeah. know, one of these times I, I've done a my, a, my old high of, school is now a war zone from what I'm gathering yeah. from local yeah. parents. <laughs> I did a personal podcast on my feeling of that school district, and I'll get a link out to everybody at some point for it. But it's if you want to listen to it, you're welcome to. I, I <laughs> just say, you know. It's my opinion. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah, talk okay. about the past. Google is now 25 years old. Yeah, it's weird to think. Uh, you know, so Google was founded in September of 1998. Uh, so a 25-year anniversary would have been this month, not this week, but still. And um, Was I living in Vegas or had we just... No, we were still no, living in Vegas. No, we were still... Yeah, it was before, um, before that. So... And it's actually interesting you bring that up because you got to think about how different the internet was in 98. The web had been out for seven years at that point. And and Google was founded by uh, two students at the time at Stanford, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Um, They put this together and they still are very much involved. Larry's taken a little bit of a step back in recent years, but um, at the end of the day, that's where that came from. And over the time that it's existed, because in 1998, you would have searched on Yahoo, I think, was the dominant Yahoo. search engine at the time. Wasn't there something called Alta uh, Vista? Web crawler. Alta, yeah, web crawler, well, Ultra Vista. Ask Jeeves was another one at that oh, period. Yeah. I remember we still, uh-huh. had, we still had uh, web rings, too. Yes, yeah, web rings. Yes. I actually and, had a website had web rings. <laughs> and all of that was only applicable if you weren't using a service like America Online that boxed you into their stuff. So it was... Uh, literally, I mean, you had well, this itty-bitty screen. That time. Oh, you did? I, I literally oh, had sorry. American Online, and that's when I found out, oh, wait, I can have another browser type? Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it just, uh, I, I, you know, but in any event, Google, majorly successful company over the years. They've added a lot of different things that a lot of us use. Gmail, which is a huge email system that I actually like. It works well, in my opinion. Uh, our mapping services, things like, uh, uh, you know, cloud computing, um, Waze, again, on the mapping side of it, YouTube. Uh, you know, all these are different brands that they have either started or bought uh, and improved. Now, some of the other things that we've seen from them are things like Google Glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Google yeah. Plus was another one. I, I still remember Google Plus. Uh, and you Google know, it still Plus sort of is really out there. Nice. Yeah, but it was so nice and clean. They, the the design a, was crisp and clean. So it was yeah, Facebook just, during the first month. Yeah, <laughs> first exactly. Month. It just, you know, it never it never really took off, but it was, I, I remember that. I, I liked it. And it's, uh, I think it's, I can't remember the name of it now, but there's a subversion of it for business use, which I think is retiring as well. Huh. But, um, but yeah, you know, so you kind of look back at all of these different things and uh, some of the stuff that they've brought, cloud computing being another big, big part of it that they still do. And the other part of it that's interesting about Google is there's this other piece of it um, that used to be called like the X Lab or somebody, somebody's going to get upset about that name. Anyway, the, um, where they would do <laughs> these projects, it's where Google Glass came out of, they work on quantum computing. Uh, some of their things include self-driving cars. Um, Sidewalk Labs is one of the things that came out of that. And some other things, stuff that isn't really talked about, but it is driving technology. I'm sure there's a lot going on with uh, 
adaptive AI in that department now. But it is cool to see the company. I know a lot of people have their issues with Google as well, but this really is an American success story that came from two students at Stanford University that is a part of our lives on a daily basis for most of us now. So anyway, Google's 25 years old. Happy birthday to Google. Hey, the writer's strike is over. Yes, the writer's strike has ended, which is a good thing. And we'll talk a little later in the show about what actually came out of this. Okay. But um, the, and this was interesting, too, because most times when they have a union vote, my understanding is the union members vote. This one was done just by the administration. The leadership. Yeah. The leadership. Yeah. And uh, so at 12.01 on Wednesday, the strike ended and um, they got some stuff that kind of, in my opinion, needed to happen. And again, at the end of the day, the problem is if you don't support your writers, and I say this from personal experience, you don't really have anything else. And whatever anybody else does, it's the writers that either make you look good or not as far as the context, you know, of whatever your role might be that uh, Look that at this the Star Wars from. sequel movies. Example. Good <laughs> writers. <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to swear on the air. Oh, um, okay. anyway. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, it's good to see that uh, uh, being done. I'm glad that it's worked out. And I'm also going to be very glad to see some of our scripts coming back and some new television. They're saying that it's going to be the talk shows and like the evening shows and stuff that will get back to normal first. So this would be like your Saturday Night Live, stuff like that. And then we'll start seeing series and all of that kind of thing coming back on that end. Mm -hmm. NASA taking steps to protect its asteroid Bennu sample. Yeah, so, Gretchen, I'll put you on the spot. Can you give us the quick rundown on what this is? I can give you a vague idea. <laughs> I know well, it, landed, with a vague it, idea. Landed, it landed in Utah, and it was like a sample of an asteroid that they 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 put together the math, sent this thing out there, grabbed the sample, and then made it back home, and then landed in Utah. That's really yeah. pretty much all I know. <laughs> well, and that's basic. That's basically what it is. They collected okay. a sample of an asteroid, as you say, and it brought back. It's they're still not sure quite how much is in there. It could be up to nine ounces. It's a big deal because it allows them to be able to look at something that really is off world that we haven't been able to see before, and. Right now, it's undergoing quite a bit of scrutiny to be able to unpack it because they don't want to accidentally pollute the samples, contaminate them exactly. for the environment. So as a for example, they do not expect to find any biological matter because the asteroid is lifeless, at least as far yeah. as we know. And if they did, that could be some kind of contamination. So uh, this thing landed. Um, so it went up, got its sample, came back, worked perfectly. Clearly, my former uh, auto mechanic was not involved in this. And um, they were able to get something that really is going to be, from a scientific community, a very, very big deal. So, you know, the more information we can get like this, the more we can learn. And mm -hmm. having hands-on things is very, um, very difficult. So, like you said, I it landed in uh, Utah at a munitions place. So the first thing they had to do is make sure there was no unexploded munitions to be able to get out to it and be safe. And they brought it into a, um, a temporary clean room. And started getting into it um, on the training range. Uh, the personnel wore bunny suits. Those are the white suits that go over your clothing and everything to uh -huh. make sure there wasn't contamination. They opened the top of the capsule and conducted what they called a, nit a nitrogen purge. Um, and that's where they pump in gas to make sure that contaminants like oxygen, moisture, and so on don't 
somehow make their way inside. Now, what they're doing now is they're taking it to a clean room at Johnson Space Center. And in that, they're going to move the canister into what they call a glove box, which is a sealed container that can be accessed by technicians sticking their hands through a partition. And the inside of it is inert, I think, also with hydrogen gas. Oh, wow. uh, same thing for the collector arm. And then they get to start doing their studies on it. So this is going to be really cool to see what actually comes out of this. I, I'm just still amazed that they were able to do the engineering and the math to have it fly out there, find, get to the asteroid, grab the stuff, and then come back home. Because, you know, space is moving. I mean, yeah, I it, mean is. It's, oh, yeah. it seems like we're just sitting here on this planet, but... Everything is moving out there, including us. <laughs> and it's actually it's it actually has another step on it, which I thought was kind of cool. The um, vehicle um, that is conducting all of this actually did a drop off with this canister, and it's still in space, and it's going on to collect another sample from somewhere else now too. Oh, really? So yeah. it's 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 kind of interesting to look at wow. all the moving parts of this and the fact that everything worked. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. My cousin was part of the team that landed on that comet, uh, what, two years ago? Oh, really? Right, yeah. yeah. That's so, cool. So, you know, part of the math was just, I mean, it was really worth threading a needle on those, you know? So, and to everybody, yes, I will be harassing Bill to get his cousin on the show at some point in the future to talk uh -huh. about it. That would be yeah, really cool. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I have actually tried. And uh, uh, I have to figure it out. Maybe we can kidnap him or something. All right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we haven't done this in a few weeks. It's fun to be back. All right. What's next? Oh, the U.S. is planning its first fusion plant, and it could generate pollution free power by 2035. So, this is like a really cool, good thing, in my opinion. Yeah. It is. And, uh, I mean, okay, so we've talked about nuclear fusion, which this is, and fission, which is what we use now for what would be considered like a nuclear power plant. Um, and even though there's similarities, they're both nuclear, they both, you know, work with uh, dealing with atoms and stuff. A fission plant breaks the atoms apart. And you have, while the power is clean, you have, you know, leftovers like radioactive waste, which is a bad thing, in my opinion. I mean, so this but works it is the other still pretty good. I mean, yeah, true. You know, I mean, it, <laughs> it but it actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know what? Anyway, this one works the other way. You're pressing hydrogen atoms into each other into such force that they combine into helium, and that releases enormous amounts of energy and heat, and it doesn't mm -hmm. create radioactive waste. No, and that is the benefit is you don't have that. So I wonder how long I can until I can add one of these uh, reactors to my power wall. <laughs> now that'll be the day when you can go to walmart and buy your you know mini fusion reactor anyway so <laughs> we're going to be watching this technology i something i know i'm personally interested in and there, there's still some development that needs to be done obviously this is a new technology but at the end of the day you know with worries about environment and climate change and just the fact that we really don't want to produce all this nuclear waste it would be a good thing to have something that would replace that and, you know, I, I don't know. At the end of the day, I just, I just like to see this actually coming into fruition. I would, too. I mean, there's still a lot of science I got to pull on it. From I mean, I've been following the fusion thing for a bit now. But if they can pull it off by 2035, it'll be a good day. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. It's good to have a goal. 
and it's good to see it actually having a real shot. You know, I think that's what I'm seeing here with this type of development. Yeah. Correcto grabs seven million dollars to build its out there to build out its grammarly for Spanish. Okay, there you go. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'm going to need something that speaks English. I, I think English. at some point. I <laughs> yeah, can't really. English, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, we've been talking AI. It's been a big deal this year, and um, generative AI, which is actually what we're really talking about. AI has been around for a while. Generative AI means the computer can essentially learn, and we are seeing a number of other companies coming into fruition that are being able to take this technology and build it out to do different things. The company that you're talking about here, Correcto, is based in Madrid, Spain, and is gearing towards Spanish speakers. So that it's going to be something that's going to be really interesting to see all of that come together. Mm-hmm. Chat GPT is getting smarter. Yeah, so in recent weeks, they've been talking about some of the new things. They're getting to a point here where there's going to be the ability to communicate just like we're talking here. So um, that's in there. The ability to use pictures and videos uh, is in prototype. So we're seeing a number of other things coming up in the next generation of this. And, you know, ChatGPT specifically and um, BARD, which is Google's uh, attempt at this and some of these other things, have created a lot of um, churn and controversy might be the right word for it with a variety of different things. AI, in this sense, is a little closer to what people think of kind of like sci-fi, like Terminator and that kind of thing. In fact, I was talking to somebody yesterday, a client, that was really legitimately scared about this. Some CEOs have said this could create an Armageddon. The thing of it is, is I think what gears that is the fact that these type of systems are able to reprogram themselves. So in other words, you have a programmer that put the framework together at some point, or probably a team of programmers, and then the system is trained by using books and music and other various things, movies and whatnot, to learn, essentially. And from that, it can rewrite its own code to be able to upgrade its own capabilities. Now, the positive of that is that you have a system that is getting smarter. The negative is that you have a system that's getting smarter, that you're not really involved in that process. And I think that's what scares a lot of people. And, you know, so where that's going down the road, I am not seeing the Armageddon thing. I do not think we're headed in that direction, but I do think there's a lot of ways to abuse this. And from that standpoint, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the ones is schools. I mean, you can have an AI now write your papers. I'll tell you what, that would have saved me a lot of money when I was in college. It would have saved me a lot of time and fell panic. I'm a hardcore procrastinator. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm a hardcore procrastinator too. I just, but there were some things I, and and now I'm beyond the statute of limitations on this. But I, uh, I did my work in classes that were applicable to what I was studying. But there's other classes, and I've said this before that my opinion is I think the university sometimes make you take things just to have people just to make in these money. classes. Yeah, I think it's money. just they take. Yeah, here take and from that this, standpoint, make, we need to make money. Yeah, and, and that's and that's what it is, and fill the seats. And from that standpoint, let's just say I got some help sometimes with the papers where I needed it. But now mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're seeing that you know all of that can be done, and content matching programs that look for things like plagiarism don't work on this because it is a unique paper or document or article or whatever. It's not plagiarized really, 
but it's still not written by the author by who the purports student. to have written it. Yeah. 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 And, and the thing is, is people sp- need to learn how to write and organize their thoughts. That's the whole yes, point and, of it. And I do think that's, you know, the way that schools are set up now is different because the whole world is you look stuff up. I mean, when we went to school, it was about researching encyclopedias and finding information. Now it's how to use more, use and consume information because you can find it all online. But at the end of the day, um, you still need to know how to write. And that, I think that's where the concern comes from. The other one that I'm seeing that is starting to, to become more and more of an issue is the spam emails to try to steal your money and ID and stuff. Yeah. And one of the ways that you were able to tell that is, let's say you got an uh, email that purported to be from Amazon. There would usually be words misspelled or the context was wrong or the graphics were wrong. Oh, They're using I AI to make going. it look perfect. You know, so you do I have see to where be, you're going with this. Yeah. Uh oh. So, yeah. so from that standpoint, it's still the same old don't open a link that's in an email. Make sure you independently go to whatever company's website on a web browser using their ID and not something in the email. And don't call a number in the email because that phone number is probably going to go to the scammer as well. So it's still about being careful. But one of the things that would clue you off on that, which was the formatting and some problems that that had no longer exists. So it is definitely uh, something to be concerned about. But the other side of it is, is these type of technologies are starting to be used in things like medical and other stuff that are being able to achieve a lot of goals that are actually very positive as well. And so it's, it's like any technology, you can use it for good or you can use it for bad, you know? Mm-hmm. And I guess our last thing today, smart speakers are getting smarter. Yeah, along this line, too, this is something that's been out there. They're upgrading um, the smart speakers, Amazon. I won't say her name here to activate everybody's that's listening, but uh, <laughs> they are starting to push out some upgrades for just open conversation um, so that you can talk to her in the way that we're talking now. Now, the one thing I do have to say on this is that function has been around for a while, but it has not been in general use. So we're going in that direction. They debuted this technology. Amazon did at a trade show recently, and it seemed to work pretty well. The problems was that sometimes she wouldn't understand. Of course, they were in a convention center with all the background noise. So that's to be expected a little bit, but it did work quite well. So for plain voice searching and just if you want to talk to somebody, you can through these type of technologies. All right, well, we've got a great show coming up for you in the next segment here as well. We're going to be doing an extended Q&A. And like we said in the beginning, we've had a lot of questions coming in, and we need you to just keep sending them. Userfriendly.show. New domain name, all of the old ones still work, so don't worry about that. But userfriendly.show is our website. You can get out there, submit your questions, submit your comments, submit your ideas, or just let us know what you think of us. Please be kind. Userfriendly.show. This is Userfriendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. User-Friendly.show is our website. So we're saying just when we went out of the past section, we need your questions and your comments, and that is what's driving today's segment. So with no further ado, let's jump into a Q&A. What's our first question? Are transcription sunglasses real? 
So this actually came in a few weeks ago. It actually came in before our break. And um, during that time, I had to, you know, go ahead and get a pair of these just to see how they worked because it was research. And what I ended up getting was an augmented reality pair of glasses. And um, it's actually quite interesting. I think it still needs some development. But the thing is, at the end of the day, it actually does work. It has transcription. It also has a feature that I really do like. So that you can look at like a sign or something written in the language. And what you'll see it is in your language. And it's actually so good that it's able to pretty much match the font and the color of the original whatever you're looking at. So I have a question. I've never heard of these. So what exactly is the definition of transcription? Okay, transcription specifically is the idea, I think, closed captioning. Oh, okay. 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 The the difference being is that, and I think probably now they use real time for this, but closed captioning originally was somebody literally listening to the dialogue and trying to type it. That was why sometimes on the news, if you turn on your closed captioning, it wasn't always right or synced. Mm -hmm. Um, So what this is able to do is understand language in real time and create the text version of it. So if somebody's hearing impaired, that's where these would have come from. Okay. The tech. And there are transcription sunglasses that are just that product, kind of like as a medical device. Mm-hmm. What I got was something a little more broad um, that did this as a function, among other things. And like I say, there's still some bugs to work out of it. The main one being that it's if you have the uh, augmented reality turned on and are walking around your house, you're going to walk into something that is very <laughs> um, distracting and blocks things. But the, the transcription version wouldn't have that because it's just a transcription. It isn't start trying to do all these other things. But the technology itself did work. So is the, is the idea that I could go to uh, Quebec and uh, be able to read the French? That's, that's the augmented reality. So that's, that's different than these. So the transcription function on mine was built into what is really augmented reality glasses that had both of those functions. And with that, yes, you can. Oh, okay. So the one thing that I would not suggest doing, and I'm trying to figure out the logic behind this, is one feature it has is it will do navigation. But if you attempted to drive a car with these things on, I, I just, just don't. Just don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Can you still buy a tape player? This is a listener's question that came in, and I got to talk to her a little bit. And uh, we were having a conversation about this. What she's talking about here is specifically a compact cassette. So what we think of is like a cassette tape, right? Yeah. And this is a technology that's been around for a long time. I mean, I think it came out in the late 60s or something um, when they built this. And at the time, you, you got to think back to the time when this stuff was created. It was real to real tapes. It was more popular tapes. in the 70s. And 80s. Yeah. And, yeah. and stuff for, for our use. Compact cassettes were actually originally designed for doing dictation. They weren't very good quality. And, you know, to, to dive in a little bit, there's different speeds of audio tape. The Faster the speed or slower the speed will affect the tape quality. These ran at a slower speed than the reel-to-reels sometimes. So they didn't have the capabilities to have like nice music and that type of thing. But for dictation, they were replacing something called a wire recorder, which was this device that literally used a piece of wire and magnetized it to take dictation. The only problem is, is they were prone to breaking. You had this wire, when you would try to rewind it, it would snap and it was about the width of a human hair, so you can only imagine trying to re-roll something like that. Oh, man. And the reel-to-reel players were huge and were expensive. So this was a solution to that, you know, that came out at that standpoint, but was definitely something that over the years had developed. And there were a lot of other formats, too, when this came out that kind of started all of this stuff. 
Um, and over the years, they've had some other ones. RCA, as a for example, made something called a sound tape cartridge. It looks like a larger cassette. It's a similar idea with the tape in a cartridge, you know, different mechanism and all that kind of stuff. But compact cassette kind of caught on. And then as time went by, the technology was increased so that it could record better quality sound. They were able to finally get it to be uh, what we call now a four track tape. So it would do stereo. So in other words, one side has two tracks and then you flip it over and the other side has the additional two for left and right. Mm-hmm. And um, because they were something that was easy to carry around, uh, you, at the time, records, you know, imagine trying to play a record in your car. Yeah. And there already is really... equipment that would do that. I have, well, I have a linear record player that's really cool. I could yeah. carry it on my shoulder and play the record. <laughs> but for most, and, and that in today's dollars would have also been $4,000 or something when it's sold originally in the 80s. So, but these were a much smaller, much more compact way of doing it. Walkman came out from Sony. That really drove the cassette thing with the first personal stereo. So these have been around for a long time, but like a lot of technology, it started to be used less and less. CDs, once they got CDs to a point that you could play them without, um, you know, them bouncing around and skipping in your car and stuff. Boy, do I remember that. And uh, other applications. And now today, of course, we use things like MP3s and digital audio, so you don't even have physical media anymore. But um, at the end of the day, this was something that was around for a long time. So what happened? Well, uh, in answer to the listener's question, can you still buy a tape player? Yes, they are still made. And it's interesting. There's two things that have kept this technology going. One is prisons. So when tapes really stopped being used, it was in a lot of places here in the United States and elsewhere, the only kind of media that was allowed in the prison for a prisoner to have. And there's this whole thing that goes along with it. The cassette player had to be a specific model. The, the tape and the cassette had to be clear. So you couldn't see anything. And, you know, someone stashed oh, so something, something inside be it. Hidden, yeah, Ex- exactly. And so that kept tapes going. Another one in the ex- example, of the United Kingdom, they used interview recorders and not just in the United Kingdom, but there they continued to use them for a long time. This was a device in a police station that had two tape decks in it, kind of like a dubbing deck, and it made two copies for when they were interviewing a criminal. And that used cassettes. So it never stopped being manufactured, which means it didn't die completely. But unfortunately, today, there is only one tape mechanism that's still being made. And it's not a very good one. I mean, it's reliable and all of that kind of thing. But if you wanted to get a new tape mechanism that was like soft touch buttons or some of the really slick stuff like Sony used to make, you you can't get that anymore. So if you buy a modern tape player and you still can you want to look at a couple of different things. Number one is the ratings and make sure that um, you're getting something that isn't just a piece of junk. And there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of them that, in my opinion, should be more Amazon lists them to go straight to the recycler and kind of skip the person in between to skip the complaints that they're going to have. Yeah. They, they sound terrible. Uh, there are some that are a little bit better out there. Um, there's a, a video um, thing on YouTube called Techmoan where he goes in and looks at a lot of these different things that are out there now and some of the old ones and stuff to see what works. And there are some that are pretty decent, but again, they're not as good as they uh, used to be. The other problem is, is the Dolby stopped licensing in 2016, their noise reduction for the use of cassettes. So you can't get noise reduction on anything newer than that. So the other question then that would come out of this that she said, okay, well, if that's the case, would it make sense to buy an older unit, you know, that had these features? So what I did the only problem is, is you need a little bit of technical know-how because things like the belts die after a certain amount of time. And 
So, you know, you want to look into that and make sure it's something that, uh, that you can either repair or get repaired for a reasonable amount of money. And if you do get a used one, the other thing if it is, is if it is broken, see what's wrong with it. My feeling on that is if all the electronics work and the description is something like it makes a whirling sound, but it won't play. Okay. That's probably your belt. You can clean that up and you know, some easier than others. You can change the belt. You can, or have someone do it. And then you're probably going to have a working player, but you got to remember some of this equipment's going on 30 and 40 years old and it is mechanical and it is electronic. So that can bring in its own kind of problems. But again, yep. just to sum that up, yes, you can buy a cassette deck still. They do still make them, but a lot of them aren't very good. And then the other thing of it too is cassettes. So most people that buy these are buying them to play a cassette collection, um, not really record. And that's also the thing. There's four types of cassettes. So the type one, which is the regular one, but then you have metal and chrome and some other things. And a lot of the newer players have no clue about that. So you want to look into that as well. And you, I don't think you can buy new cassettes outside of Probably type one not. anymore either. Hmm. So I, I, I know that a couple of bands I listen to are putting out cassettes now because it's retro, but yeah, as a novelty. Yeah. I, I've been seeing that too. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is about that is the cassettes are a novelty. In fact, there's one band that, um, along those lines really kind of took that all the way and put out their new album on a cylinder phonograph record. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, so there's, there's a lot of stuff like that's really kind of more to hang on the wall. I mean, it works, right? But, uh, but the one funny thing about it is what has made it come back and not really for novelty is phonographs uh, that's being used a lot more. And I even dusted off my old turntable. I mean, you know, it's kind of cool. Yep. So not to switch sides, but, uh, what really is the difference between an internet cloud and the server at my office? All right. So we're moving ahead in time here just a little bit. I would say location. <laughs> location, <laughs> location, yeah, location, a, location. <laughs> there was this t-shirt. I, I, I wish I'd bought it. It's, it's, uh, it's like a sad cloud, you know, crying. It's like, I hate to tell you, but the cloud is just simply someone else's computer. And mm-hmm. in a way, and at the time that came out, that was pretty true. And it still is. I mean, the cloud in a very, very, very basic description. It's simply you're using servers that are in a data center that space is leased out. So the server in your office, which might even run your website and stuff, is something that's physically in your building. The cloud is a server that is physically in someone else's building. Now, that is really oversimplifying it because as the cloud has developed, there's a lot more going on than just that. Your redundancy, your backup, your security, all that kind of stuff. You don't have to buy new equipment. You pay a monthly fee. but it generally is a lot less than the cost of replacing a server every three years and the employees to run it and all that kind of stuff. And you don't have the downtime. So there are advantages like that. But at a, like I said, at a very, very basic level, you're just simply taking your information, putting it out on a server, server deck that's in a data center somewhere and accessing it through the internet. Isn't it too that, you know, at least my experience, it's the internet cloud is typically more than one server out there. So you have uh, yeah, and I, much yeah, better absolutely. access. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas bandwidth restrictions and stuff about your server at your office. <laughs> well, and what you're talking about is one of the huge reasons for going to the cloud is redundancy. So in other words, if your server in your office breaks or if there's a fire and it burns or something, you're, you're out of business. And Bill, like you say, exactly, it's, it's not one server. It's a, it's a bank of equipment. And in fact, a lot of times it's distributed across these banks of equipment in a case like uh, 
Amazon, um, you have multiple data centers where you're actually redundant across different buildings in different parts of the world, you know, so they take that to the extreme. And then that way, if your office burns down, you really just have to go buy a new laptop and you can get back to your data. So yeah, absolutely. What is the largest cloud provider? Yeah, on that note, um, interesting thing. So I, uh, this actually is a question that came in and it was a curiosity that kind of fit in here. So I, I looked this up on Knowledge Hut. I, uh, you know, assuming that these are all pretty similar, but the big three that you would expect, Amazon Web Services is number one. Uh, Google Cloud Platform is number two and Microsoft Azure is number three. But then some of the others that I, had, I wasn't aware of really, IBM Cloud, um, I knew that was out there, but it wasn't one that I would have really thought about. Oracle also has a cloud thing and they come in at four and five. So they're pretty well used um, for various things. Alibaba has a cloud system that competes with Amazon. Um, they're uh, based in Singapore and they do the same type of thing that uh, that Amazon offers and Microsoft and some of these others. So they're growing in there. Salesforce has their own cloud and they're focused on things like CRM and some of the other marketing tools that they offer, but it's a huge service. And then the last three that rounded up are Verizon, VMware, and Red Hat. So, you know, that's kind of what they are. Okay. So we asked earlier, and we said we'd cover it again. So what did come out of the writer's strike? Yeah, this question is being asked by a lot of people, myself included, and I think it's uh, uh, definitely something worth looking at. So uh, just a little bit of metrics here. The writer's strike actually ran 148 days. And um, so that's a pretty long strike when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And what they were worried about is a couple of different things. And again, I, I, and I will say I'm, I'm very biased on this. I have a lot of respect for writers. Uh, and I don't know if that's a bias, but it is because I guess there are some people out there that maybe don't feel that way. But I know from my own experience that having writers is kind of the key first point of having good product. And even outside of the uh, you, you know, the craft and Hollywood and all of these different type of things, just watching television, we all know that, especially when reality television was like the big thing and there are not writers usually, uh, which isn't entirely true, but uh, it's at least presented that way. But some of them could be real clunkers. I remember a certain bartending show that was kind of like that, um, that you don't have the knowledge and the expertise and the creativity coming in. So it just ends up being a thing. Now, most reality shows have writers and the reality isn't, that's a little subject. But again, at the mm -hmm. end of the day, these are some of the things that were going on. So coming out of this is that based on the season, there has to be a number of writers if it's a scripted show. Uh, the way that AI is used was the other big part of this. And then the fact that the writers would actually receive residuals from stuff that was streamed. Since we're streaming most of our stuff now, that's yeah. become an issue too. I can understand that. That's good. All righty. Is it true seniors should play puzzle games? Yeah, and Gretchen, this is your question. I know you were wondering because you see these ads, you know? Yeah, and I live with a senior, and I'm starting to watch her memory um, degrade slowly. And it's like, well, is there anything I can do for her? And I keep seeing these things, and I'm wondering, is this just marketing nonsense, or is it real? You know, some of it's certainly to sell a product, but and, and I offer my opinion on this as a layman's opinion. I'm hardly a doctor, and there's people that could certainly speak to this a lot more directly. But 
As a general idea, it is true that if you keep your mind active, it will help with memory and cognitive function, all that kind of stuff. To that end, things like hearing loss can cause dementia. You know, you see stuff like that. And if you are engaged in a puzzle game or whatever that you have to think about it to be able to play it, that can help to keep your brain active. Just avoid all of the in-app purchases and various other things. <laughs> yeah. um, but there is some there is some science behind it that makes that true. Okay, because I know that um, I read a, a thing that uh, dancing seniors that lived in senior communities, those that actually actively danced, have seemed to fare better uh, yeah. emotionally. I can I can see where that's a, it's, you know, it's and this is true not just to seniors. If you go sit somewhere and do nothing, and it's like mm -hmm. anything else, eventually that's going to create a problem. The difference with seniors is they're not going to most likely be going to work. Sometimes there are physical, you know, disabilities and things that play into that. So they may not be able to be as active. And then you start having things like hearing loss or vision loss. So, yeah, I do think it is of an advantage to keep your mind active. And just as long as you're doing something that really does that and isn't just like you say, marketing. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of it's interaction, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the puzzle games give an interaction and allow them to keep up with it. You know, we day-to-day -day use problem solving we do things um you know a lot of seniors uh my grandmother uh, on my dad's side she kind of just sat in the house and did uh crosswords near the end she was kind of gone she, but she'd been right. doing those for you know longer than i've been alive whereas my other grandmother she'd go out she'd had friends until covid and she was, you know, sharp as a fiddle for the whole time. And then COVID hit and she wasn't able to go out. And it was just very, very quick. Yeah. That things kind of went down. I've noticed that a lot, I've, I've run into other people who said that during the COVID era that, um, or lockdown, that their grandparents who were locked away somewhere where they couldn't get out, it really, it really took a toll yeah. on them. And that happened a lot. The idea being they didn't want them exposed to COVID, but now you have these other problems, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, very true. So I would say the answer to that is that if you have a senior that knows how to use a device and enjoys the puzzle game. Encourage um, Not to the exclude. Or him. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't get okay. it, dad. Yeah, exactly. And a bigger tablet a lot of times too, because you got to think vision, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, to that end, yes, but not to the exclusion of everything else. But it is an added thing, sure. So, to top us off, I like tabletop role-playing because it doesn't require a computer. My group now wants to use things like D&D Beyond, and I'm being forced to bring a laptop to the table. Is there any way I can still avoid having a computer but allow the rest of the group to use one? Yes, and I, for the record, this is not my question, although I certainly have had this concern. Actually, I was kind of surprised. I was looking through, and uh, several, uh, several people have asked different kind of versions of this. This is a kind of summing up or, uh, you know, quoting all of that. So, Bill, uh, what's, what's your feeling on this? If the rest of your group wants to use a computer, can you still play without one? And is it going to cause a problem? If you're in person, I, I can't see it doing that. I know that a number of times what it actually comes down to from what I've heard is that DMs want that because then they have access to the character sheet without having to have someone hand it to them or, you know, let's heaven forbid somebody's cheating. 
Oh, of course not. That would never happen. <laughs> I just, I, I can't believe someone would do that in D&D, but there are people who do. And yeah, it was like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. You know, for me, if I, as a DM in person, there is tech that I like. Like, I would love to have a, you know, the, the uh, virtual tabletop in my table, you know, using the TV oh. and such. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you lay it flat and you could maps. have a map show up and you could put yes. the little figures on top of it, that would that's be That's just cool. because, you know, it would look good. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as asking someone to use D&D Beyond, that's a personal choice. And I'd say you put it on a tablet with nothing else. That way, you know, you're not going to go with games or, you know, maybe looking something up. Because I use, as someone who plays on Roll20 regularly, like I will use it to look up Forgotten Realms lore or stuff like that on their wiki and stuff because it's like, okay, yeah, let me, you know, do I know this DM? And then, oh, okay, I looked it up. and <laughs> Right. Well, and that kind of, I, I see where that makes sense. One thing I don't throw out as a positive too, I noticed this has eliminated the uh, rules argument and that's anybody that's gamed has probably run into this from time to time where somebody, well, that's not the rules. And the next 45 minutes is spent with people paging through books and the, um, the, the online systems do seem to eliminate those kind of problems. And I think my feeling on this is, and our listeners that have asked us, the um, gentleman I talked to about this kind of felt the same way is that like, for me personally, I'm a software engineer. I spend most of my time in front of a screen. And gaming was one of the activities where we didn't have that. Now, all of a sudden, we do there, too. And, I, you know, I think for me personally, that's one of the reasons why I have had some difficulty with it. Now, everybody else seems to want it, so I've just been doing it. But, like, Bill, you kind of just brought this up, too. I find when I'm sitting there at my laptop, when I'm waiting for things, I'm very tempted and do go check email or send Jeremy an IM or something. Jeremy would do this all the time when we played. Yeah. He was playing other things at the same time. And it's like, so he wasn't actually completely focused on the game because right. he was sitting at a computer, you know? And I think, and, you know, when we used to have to play on Roll20 because of COVID and, yeah. and now because of distances, I, I still could see that a little bit more. But I'm talking about where you're sitting at a table with your friends mm -hmm. gaming. Yeah. I like to physically roll dice, too, which is another thing oh, this can take too. away. Oh, yeah. I yeah. like my shiny yeah. math rocks. Yeah, and I've, and like, I, by I the way, I have to make a little confession. I have to make I've, a little confession here. I um, the, the, one another group, not the one I play with now, is really you must roll dice on roll twenty. So I finally decided, okay, I'm going to get around this. I don't cheat when I play, except for this time. Roll twenty does most of their computation client side because it costs more to do it server side. In my opinion, I'm probably going to get yelled at by Hasbro for saying this, but even things like which books you buy or unlock, that's all stored locally. So Are I you went in and D, &D Beyond, no D and D Beyond, yeah. Um, okay, because I was saying I, 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 I I'm sorry, I said the wrong different. the wrong product. This is D and D Beyond, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, Wizards of the Coast, okay, it's been a long year. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, so I went in and and fixed the dice roller, so I crit it every time, and it wasn't so much to cheat; it was to get the idea across that I wanted to roll dice physically, mm -hmm. and afterwards I was allowed to. So hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have beautiful dice that Jeremy bought me. I have dice that has little sparklies that float inside. I have dice that have little dragons inside of them. I have dice that are made out of stone and metal and all kinds of wonderful things. I even think Jeremy has a set of dice uh, that had flamingos floating inside of them. <laughs> I mean, just so many cool things. Why won't you, you know, I mean, 
why not use these things? They're fun. It's part of the I, magic I of the I game. Stuff, tapping well, I screen, gonna, so I was going to go out of my way to get a physical pair that hooks up to my roll 20. Yeah, they have those oh, too. Wow. You know, yeah. so that I can roll them and still have it roll up on there. And, you know, I mean, I, I collect dice just like anybody else. My, my wife is goblining for dice a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> for someone who doesn't play as often as I do, she sure does. But, um, you know, it's what it is. And I think a lot of it matters that way. And it goes into having fun. You know, if you're not yeah. having fun with it, you got to figure that out. And I think that's really what it comes down to. And we'll dive into this a lot more, but we are out of town and in, uh, out of time. So until next week, this is User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.